to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And today we are joined by Lynn Von Hagen, a conservation biologist and research fellow at Auburn University, and also the field team co leader of Elephants and Sustainable Agriculture Project in Kenya. So, Lynn, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Blaine. Great to be here. Thank you. All right. So, let's dive straight in. So can you please introduce yourself to the podcast and say a wee bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, again, my name is Lynn Von Hagen. Uh, I'm a PhD researcher at Auburn. Uh, and the main focus of my study is on human-elephant conflict and coexistence. I also look at elephant movements and elephant behavior um, in the Savo ecosystem of Kenya, uh, more specifically in the Kasagao Wildlife Corridor, which lies between Savo East and Savo West National Parks. Um, home to the country's largest elephant population of over 12,000 individuals, and it's in the southeastern part of Kenya. Mm-hmm. So we'll dive straight into the the main point, which is obviously talking about human-elephant conflict and coexistence. So what does human-elephant conflict actually mean, and why is it a uh, major problem in um, African range states? Well, um, To understand HEC, human-elephant conflict, you kind of need to uh, look at a broader context and uh, first look at human-wildlife conflicts. Um, So across the globe, they're continuing to increase because you have people moving into areas where wild animals once were. Uh, They're also interrupting migration corridors. So a lot of times people and animals uh, end up competing over the same resources or the same space and interacting. A lot of these conflicts can be negative. Um, And same with human elephant conflict here in Kenya and also in Asia with Asian elephants. Um, I mostly concentrate with African elephants. Um, But you see the same thing happening here with human elephant conflict, Um, especially in places like Kenya, um, where the population is, is starting to expand. Um, Overall, elephants are declining at about 8% per year across Africa, um, a very unsustainable number. Uh, But in some localities, like in Kenya, um, populations uh, that have been decimated from the poaching crisis, uh, like in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, um, where they lost over 90% of the population of elephants, is is starting to slowly recover. So you're seeing elephants move some in some areas. You're seeing elephants move back into places um, and where they haven't occupied before. Uh, so they're really coming into contact with people a lot more, and these conflicts are occurring, um, which can be negative for the people. Elephants can be dangerous. People can become injured or killed, and then a lot of times. Uh, opinions of elephants are not favorable and people can retaliate against the elephants or harm the elephants. So what are some of the different forms of human-elephant conflict? Well, there's several different kinds. Uh, Competition for water is one of them, Uh, especially uh, our area is very drought prone. We actually just got rain, any kind of significant rain for the first time in six months. So as uh, elephants and other wildlife become desperate, you see them moving towards water sources, uh, some of which are used by humans 
and they come into conflict over those. Uh, they compete with livestock over water sources, um, occupying the same state, uh, the same uh, areas in many parts of Africa, uh, especially during migration season. A lot of times children can't even walk to school because there's too many elephants in the area and it's dangerous. Um, 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 road crossings, things like that. Elephants are trying to move between uh, areas. Uh, they can be uh, hit by trains or cars, things like that. Uh, it happens a lot, especially in Asia. Um, and then <clears throat> crop raiding, of course, is one of the, the biggest forms of crop raiding. Interesting. So it takes many different forms, but can you elaborate on what the most common one is and, and why that's the case? Um, crop rating is specifically what I study and definitely the largest form of it. Um, people are continuing to expand their populations and expand agricultural areas. So a lot of uh, elephants that maybe their populations are recovering are finding farms and things uh, where there used to be migration routes. Um, and elephants can get a greater nutritional advantage from eating crops. Um, they have a higher mineral density and things like that. So it's kind of like uh, sticking a field full of candy out for an elephant. So if they can see that they can get uh, something a bit tastier than their natural forage, um, even if there's plentiful natural forage, they're going to move into croplands and raid these farms. Um, that's especially problematic because you have small shareholder farms where people are dependent on their crops, uh, not only for sustenance to feed their families, but that also may be their only means of income. So if an elephant comes in and takes out half of a crop in the middle of the night, this can be really devastating uh, for impoverished farmers. And one of the reasons that they retaliate against the presence of elephants. Mm -hmm. So you touched on it before. How does this kind of interaction impact the mindset of rural farmers and local communities towards how they perceive elephants? Yeah, that's a big issue here. Um, most of us in the West, you know, love elephants. They're this iconic conservation species um, for good reasons, because elephants are quite amazing. Uh, but here in most parts of Africa, rural people view them as dangerous pests. And rightfully so. Um, you know, imagine going out of your house in the middle of the night, maybe to use the bathroom, and there's a six-ton elephant right outside your door who could potentially, you know, harm you or your family. Um and also, you know, a lot of times elephants do receive most of the blame for crop failures when that may not actually be the case. Um, but it definitely is a, a big issue here. And uh, part of the challenge of, of, you know, transitioning areas of conflict into areas of coexistence where people can peacefully live amongst the elephants is addressing uh, that attitude of, you know, fear and distrust and dislike um, from people with elephants. So what are the underlying drivers behind human-elephant conflict? There are a lot of those. Um, the first one is probably improper land use management. Um, there's no doubt that people that are uh, have settled close to areas of safety for elephants, such as natural national parks, um, wildlife sanctuaries, things like that, if they put a farm close to those areas, they're going to get hit the hardest um, by cooperating elephants. So making, uh, so making sure that we, we devise ways um, 
for people not to settle in those areas is uh, really important. Um, poverty is a huge driver of this. Um, most of these communities have no running water, no electricity. They're struggling to feed their families and to be able to send their kids to school. So when an elephant raid happens, it's devastating. Whereas if people had other means of income or were not extremely impoverished, you know, those raids may not be um, as, as devastating. Um, and uh, also, uh, you mentioned it before, you know, just this general, you know, lack of knowledge on the best way uh, of opinions of elephants, but also the best way uh, to live amongst them. Uh, people don't really understand, you know, the important role that elephants play in the ecosystem as ecosystem engineers and keystone species and how important they are to biodiversity. Uh, so there's a lot of lack of knowledge there of, you know, why it's important for, for elephants to persist in the environment. That's a really interesting point, this idea of what role they play in the ecosystem. I think from an outsider or someone not living uh, in Africa or, or Asia or range states where elephants exist, it's this idea of um, kind of what, how do they actually contribute? Like, you know, what, how do they contribute to the ecosystem? Why should we, you know, spend our time and resources to try and conserve them? So, to expand on that, what role do they play in the ecosystem? Yeah, and you find that with most species, and you see that with a lot of species that have been extirpated from areas that they um, that they once lived in, such as the wolves of North America. Uh, wolves have been uh, reintroduced in certain parts, and it's kind of retransformed the ecosystem. Um, there's a wonderful podcast uh, you can listen to about that, about how um, wolves actually changed the course of rivers. Um, you find it's a TED talk. Uh, but for elephants, um, ecosystem engineers, they really modify their habitats. Um, elephants um, come through and actually convert forest land to uh, grasslands because um, they uh, forage on trees. A lot of times knock them over, uproot them. Uh, so that really transform and it can tra be transformative for an entire landscape. Um, one of their biggest roles is they are enormous seed dispersers. Um, there's so much evidence on the amount of seeds that they pass through that digestive tract that are not digested and can kind of uh, reseed a forest, uh, especially forest elephants. Um, they call them uh, super gardeners of the forest. Um, so they have a lot to do with plant uh, co uh, community composition. How So you've kind of touched on their role in the ecosystem, but how does that actually affect humans like how do you link that back to this is beneficial to humans well aside from the ecosystem services that are provided with seed dispersal um you know it's it's a big thing to be able to um have uh trees everywhere and have a different variety of tree species um but for elephants particularly in special especially in um, places like kenya um it's a huge part of tourism i mean people paid lots of money and there's a huge percentage of the kenyan economy uh, which is dependent on tourism and most of that is from elephants um where the disconnect happens there though is unless um you know, you're a Kenyan that lives in a town that maybe has sees benefits from tourism, um, then you may not actually see a lot of the benefits of elephants because you're not getting the positive benefits of income or employment from tourism. Whereas those living in rural areas, um, all they're having to deal with is just um, 
you know, seeing that elephants are, you know, disturbing their lifestyle, they're, they're raiding their crops. So it's really quite a bit of a disconnect there. So, um, you know, education is important in making people kind of understand those links between um, ecosystem services, uh, ecology, importance of elephants, and the importance economically of elephants as well. In terms of that tourism part, I can see it being easy to make that link of importance between an elephant and um, someone who is actually benefiting from, you know, people coming in, seeing them through tourism. But if you're not benefiting from that tourism part, it's hard to kind of make that, like for me in Australia, it may be hard to make that link of this elephant is important because of these reasons. I think that's a challenge probably across the board in terms of um, making the general public understand why these animals are important because it's they may not be so obvious the reasons why they're important mm -hmm. like it generates money for me like there's the more nuanced and complicated and intricate so i think that's 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 definitely a big challenge is trying to find that that connection you know between you know me in australia and why an animal in africa is important to conserve and protect Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there, there's also the challenge there of, um, you know, kind of the Western in, interpretation of, you know, elephants are beneficial. They're amazing. Why would anyone ever not like elephants or not want to live with elephants? Whereas when you're on the ground in Africa and you, and you understand, um, you know, the things that they're facing, climate change is also another huge driver of human elephant conflict. Um, you know, crop yields have really decreased. Droughts are lasting longer. So for the people here, you know, elephants are nothing but a nuisance. And it's really, there's really a disconnect between, um, you know, people that love elephants and kind of trying to understand how, you know, it can be a frustrating situation for the people that actually live among elephants. Totally. That's really important. Like it's easy from a Westerner's point of view to look into that conflict and be empathetic towards the elephant but there's obviously two sides of the story. It's like a complicated issue and exactly. um, you know, educating and raising awareness from both sides so that kind of people like me who are completely ignorant to the details of the situation can understand and not be so reactive if we kind of see things on, on social media and on, and on the internet because there's, there's, exactly. there's deeper points to mm -hmm. the situation. Yep, absolutely. It's a it's a wicked problem, and and a lot of the solutions that you come up with just open up other problems. So um, it really takes a holistic approach to try to to figure out uh, practical solutions to the problem. Okay, so solutions. What are some current human elephant conflict prevention and mitigation strategies? Well, there is uh, quite a few out there, and part of what our project does is um, examine these different mitigation method methods um, and to, to determine which ones are the most effective. Um, things like electric fences uh, usually perform really well, um, but those aren't always attainable for uh, rural people. Um, and part of my uh, part of my master's work. Um, you know, kind of worked off the basis of there's like three key elements that you need to have like a proper deterrent method. Um, the first one is affordability. Um, a lot of most of the people that live amongst elephants can't afford any kind of uh, expenses to um, provide deterrent methods. Uh, practicality. Um, 
again, people without electricity, running water, uh, most have no means of transport whatsoever. So it has to be something feasible for them to be able to use. And most importantly is resistance to habituation because elephants are really, really smart and they can figure out ways around things and ways to overcome things. Um, but in the past, uh, electric fences do work really well, but again, uh, unattainable for most rural farmers. Um, Dr. Lucy King and her team from Save the Elephants at Elephants and Bees Project um, has a wonderful deterrent method, which is a beehive fence. Um, it's about 80% effective at deterring elephants. And in addition to that, it provides a product through the honey for farmers who are able to, to uh, put this method in. Um, um, that's one of the ones that we're testing as well. Um, we Our project has actually discovered a new deterrent method called a metal strip or cassiani fence. Um, and that kind of acts like a giant wind chime that um, hangs around a field and makes noise whenever the wind blows. Uh, chili fences are another uh, deterrent method that has been uh, used quite a bit across Africa. Um, and that involves taking hot chili peppers and mixing them with engine oil. And you put those um, on cloths around a fence and you hang the cloths up to where they, they kind of flap in the wind and, and send this noxious odor. Um, it's almost kind of like a, a mobile pepper spray. Um, those are met with varying results across Africa, also another thing that we've um, tested. Um, and the key here is most of the time people have used like traditional deterrent methods, like they're just going out with a flashlight patrolling at night, which can be very dangerous. Uh, maybe they own a dog, which warns against elephants coming, um, or maybe they, they burn fires to keep elephants away. And the problem with all these methods is, um, especially if you're physically involved, is, you know, the danger of encountering an elephant in the middle of the night. But also, you know, people are losing sleep. Um, maybe they have to keep the kids home from school because, you know, they need help guarding the fields at night. So all these traditional methods um, are, you know, take time and energy for rural people to use. And the more modern methods, which I described first, are a lot more effective um, because they use um, – like a negative recurring stimulus. So for an elephant to not get used to something, you have to provide uh, something that uh, uses multimodalities that stimulate the elephant to create a memory that this is a bad idea. Uh, for example, uh, taking the beehive fences. Um, if elephants come up to a beehive fence and it's occupied by bees, they can smell the honey, they can hear the bees, and then they can see the fence itself. So that's three modalities of the elephant stimulated. Um, now, if an elephant were to try to break that fence, bees come out, sting the elephant, which is very dangerous for an elephant. Then all of a sudden, you've got a really negative impression, an imprint of a memory um, that is probably going to be effective next time. So the next time an elephant smells bees, maybe it's going to turn the other direction and go. So that's the kind of behavioral principle that you need to um, when creating a deterrent method. Interesting. So you called them modalities. Yeah. So the more so modality meaning like a, a sense. So like sense of smell, sense of tactile touch, uh, like with the chili fences, um, that stimulates the trigeminal nerve in most mammals. So your eyes are going to water, your nose is going to run. Um, so that's going to, you know, stimulate that different modality and create a negative uh, stimulus that way. Mm -hmm. And because, because elephants are intelligent, the more modalities there are, the more kind of links they have towards, if I do this, then something bad could potentially happen. Exactly. That's 
yeah, that's the whole idea is to is to create that kind of impression that you know that I, I tried this before, had a very negative encounter. Uh, you know, I remember it in all these different ways, and I know that I'm going to avoid doing that behavior again because it it's going to be either energetically expensive, you know, take too much time and energy to try to overcome something, or I might, you know, suffer some type of irritation or injury if I attempt to do this again. So why are elephants so afraid of bees? Uh, very interesting. And, uh, you know, this is a brings up another interesting th- thing, too, about indigenous knowledge. You know, pe- uh, people for years have known uh, that elephants steered clear of areas with bees. And, you know, it was Dr. King and her team that kind of discovered that it was a lot deeper association, like elephants really did not like bees. And it's because um, Apis mellifera scutellata is the bee species here, and they're a little bit more aggressive than like the European honeybee. Uh, so they will, um, whereas the European honeybee, you can kind of safely walk amongst them. And unless you um, try to injure or swat, you know, they're going to leave you alone. Not so much with African honeybees. Um, if something irritates them or, um, you know, annoys them, they'll just come and sting. So with uh, African elephants, uh, usually those bees will actually head for the sensitive parts. They'll go towards the eyes and they'll go towards the trunk. And if they're stung in the trunk, their trunk could swell up and actually, um, actually, you know, cut off their breathing. So wow. the bees know to go for the sensitive parts of an elephant and an elephant knows that that's not what it wants to happen. <laughs> that is so fascinating. I mean, you have the small insect and then you have the African elephant and so exactly. David versus, versus Goliath kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and there's other uh, principles too, like our metal strip fence, the Cassini fence I spoke of, um, you know, that works on a different principle and it plays off of elephants' fear of humans. Um, you know, elephants usually will run away if they see a person. Um, and with this fence, uh, if the wind blows kind of sporadically, it makes this loud noise and might make elephants think that humans are presents, present. So another thing in, you know, uh, creating deterrent fences is you want to, you know, create something where an elephant is going to think, oh, no, humans are here. It's time to go. We've got to we've got to stop doing what we're doing and, and get out of here. Back to those solutions. So it seems like the bottleneck is essentially the affordability and the practicality of the method. So in your opinion, what's kind of the best bang for your buck? What's the most cost effective solution at the moment that you're aware of? Well, you know, I'm partial to say the fence that we've been working on is is a really good alternative. Um, but that's the interesting thing about deterrence is there is no one solution. Electric fences, expensive, but they work. But elephants can figure out ways around them. There's so many reports of elephants picking up logs and laying them over an electric fence to be able to cross it. Um, really? You know, wow. Chili <laughs> fences. Chili fences, usually very effective, not effective for us in our testing, probably because we had a very windy environment and it dried up too soon. Um, Whereas the metal strip fence works really well for us because we've got a windy environment. It might might not work so well in a place without a windy environment. Uh, Beehive fences work really great in areas uh, for people that can afford them and that have lots of pollinators present. But if you can't get your beehives occupied, Maybe that doesn't work so well. So that's really the challenge of mitigation. And Dr. King um, has a great way of, of looking at it. She says, you know, you've got a toolbox. 
So you've really got to figure out which tool is the best in your environment. Um, and that's why I think for my future work, um, it's really going to take a customized management plan for each community because what works well in one place may not work well in another because of both biotic and abiotic factors. Um, and also, you know, depends on how much effort that community can put in, depends on what the community can afford. It depends on the resources they have access to. Um, so that's really not an easy answer because it's going to be different in every community. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's pretty much the case in everything really in life. It's, there's no one solution that works in every possible situation. It depends on the context. But then, you know, that exactly. makes things tricky, but it's just how it is. Um, so a fairly potentially controversial question, but um, through some of the research that I've been doing before doing this interview, um, is the idea of elephant culling as a human-elephant conflict uh, mitigation strategy. What are your thoughts on that as a strategy? Um. Well, big fat no, <laughs> yes. um, but for, for several different reasons. Um, and luckily, a lot, a lot of that doesn't occur um, as much anymore because it has an unfavorable opinion with people. People don't want to see elephants, uh, you know, killed for these reasons. Um, now, that might shift if you have a situation where you have an elephant that has, you know, killed other people or something like that. Um, but just solely for crop rating. Um, it's really not an effective method because um, you have two different kind of elephant groups and you do need to kind of understand that first. Um, you have bull groups. So after elephants reach about 14 years of age, they disperse from their family units and they'll either live by themselves or live with other bulls. Um, and then you have the regular family unit, which is made up of a matriarch, the lead female, um, who kind of retains all the knowledge of the group. And she's usually the oldest female and then made up her, of, you know, their children, sisters, um, young males and things like that. So, um, you know, culling any elephant from a family group is really detrimental to the social structure. Um, elephants have strong uh, emotional bonds to their family members. So you can really kind of create chaos in um, removing just one member of that family. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the time, bulls are the crop raiders. So it's very rare that you get family groups or females that crop raid, though we have seen it occasionally um, in our study area. So the majority of the ones are going to be, you know, large bulls. Um, and there's been several studies that have shown just taking out one problematic bull um, really doesn't work because all that's going to happen is another bull is going to take that bull's place. Um, so it's just not an effective long-term strategy. All you're doing is, uh, you know, you're really not helping the problem at all. And you're, and you're also affecting the social structure. I'm doing something that has a really bad, favorable opinion. Okay. So talking about your, the project that you've been working on. So can you talk about the elephants and sustainable agriculture in Kenya project and the, the major goals for that? Sure. Um, this is a project that was established about three years ago um, through my previous institution, Western Kentucky University in the States. Um, our partners here at Wildlife Works, who are my hosts here in Kenya, um, they're one of the world's largest Red Plus Plus UN-backed carbon initiative projects um, in the world, which um, essentially uh, conserves forests in order to uh, create carbon sequestration. Uh, Jomo Kenyatta University in Nairobi, um, and we're also supported by um, Auburn University, which is my new institution, and also we're supported by the Earthwatch Institute and uh, the International Elephant Foundation. 
so the Urchwas Institute is a citizen scientist group uh, where you can actually book tours and come alongside and study with our scientists and help us on the project um, and help collect some of the massive amounts of data uh, that we look at. Uh, but initially the project got started with us uh, wanting to look at a comparison of different deterrent methods, uh, such as some of the ones I've mentioned, and see how they rank you know, against each other in this environment and find uh, solutions. Um, and one of those was the Cassini fence, the metal strip fence, which I mentioned, which we did uh, through our testing, found out that it's a viable deterrent. Um, so now we're trying to kind of spread the word about the availability of that deterrent. Um, but also we wanted to look at ecological correlates uh, to crop rating to see if there were any factors that we could assess in the environment that might warn us of times that crop rating was going to happen. Uh, looking at early warning systems for crop rating. Um, also looking at the elephants that we find in this region, identifying them and seeing if we can determine who the crop raters are, uh, which through our database we've already uh, identified over eight different bulls um, that regularly crop raid. Um, and just really search for a variety of methods to um, understand crop rating even better and also look for ways that we can promote coexistence with the, within the community. So you have a proposal for some workshop programs in the, let me see if I can pronounce this correctly, the Cassigal Wildlife Corridor. Can you, can you elaborate on, yeah, on you that it. and um, what you're hoping to achieve through that if that goes through Sure. Um, so that's as part of my PhD work um, and taking lessons that the team uh, here has been working on for the last three years and kind of trying to apply that to a larger scale. Um, so I think one of the challenges for people um, in these rural environments is they have no access to deterrent methods. So they're living amongst elephants and they don't know what to do to keep them keep them away. Um, so the workshop program would go in and kind of holistically address some of the drivers of human elephant conflict that we mentioned earlier. Uh, the first one of the, and the, the ultimate goal is to reduce human elephant conflict, but to also increase sustainable livelihoods so that when elephants or other wildlife do come and crop raid, it's not as detrimental to the livelihoods of the people that are having to deal with it. Um, so education is a big part of that, uh, teaching people best practices for living amongst elephants. A lot of them don't know how to behave or react when elephants do uh, come around, uh, teaching them about the imp their importance to the environment. Um, part of that is going to school children and teaching them about elephants and why they're so important. Um, talking about alternative livelihoods for people. Most people in this community are farmers, and that's all that they do, uh, trying to introduce them uh, and spread some of the initiatives that Wildlife Works has already been doing uh, with creating women's groups that are basket weavers, um, just different types of ways that they can earn money other than farming. Because uh, there's one thing that we haven't really touched on yet, um, and that's the effect of climate change here. Um, this area is especially hard hit for near the equator. Um, the droughts are lasting longer. There have been entire crop seasons that have completely failed for people. Uh, so moving people away from farming altogether or as the only means of income is really important because if trends continue in maybe several years from now or maybe even sooner, this may be an area that is, you know, farming is just not a sustainable practice. Um, so we want to do introduce those livelihoods for those reasons. And then also introducing for the farmers, for people that continue to farm, um, because you're not going to be able to move everyone away from that practice, you know, right away, is introduce climate smart agricultural methods. And these are ways that um, you can 
you know, teach farmers how to plant crops that aren't favored by elephants or um, have crops that are more drought resistant and sustainable, different varieties of crops, um, different ways to uh, put amendments in the soil. Uh, we did some soil sampling here and found out that every single <clears throat> farm that we sampled, uh, you know, was severely nutritionally deficient in what was needed to be able to produce, um, you know, good crops from those soil. Um, and, you know, kind of present all these different topics in, in, in a workshop format where people can actually have all this knowledge of how they can, uh, you know, apply these different methods to be able to live amongst elephants. And we're also looking for funding to be able to bring deterrence to the communities once we assess you know, which methods will work best in their area. Mm -hmm. One thing that you mentioned that I found interesting was this idea of transitioning from farming to something else. What are some realistic mm -hmm. alternatives to farming in a place such as, say, Kenya? Well, that is one of the challenges here, especially since a lot of these people are, are very rural. They may not be able to, you know, get to a town that has lots of job opportunities. Um, so they have to be able to find something they can do at home. Uh, there's a, a great women's group in the area called Hadithi, which has brought basket weaving to a lot of the, um, to the women's groups. And they have access to markets in Europe. Um, so they've been able to employ a lot of women there. Um, and again, empowering women. Women is one of the key things uh, for trying to increase sustainable livelihoods. You know, having a second income in the household uh, is important. Uh, there are local crafts that can be learned, like bead making, uh, dung paper uh, making. Um, there's also some interesting things like beekeeping that can be taught. Um, skills such as uh, fodder production. Um, you know, most of the people here actually don't turn uh, crop waste, like, you know, the, the, uh, the corn stalks that remain, they don't turn it into the soil to increase the nutrients. They just let their cows in to eat it. Um, it would benefit their crops not only to do that, or there's a way to chop those up and add nutrients to it and extend, um, the production of that to be able to, um, to be able to, you know, feed livestock and still have nutrients going into the ground. Um, there's things such as seed banks. You know, we found a couple of crop types that work really well in this region. Um, somebody from the community could be a seed bank that specifically harvests seeds and sell them to their neighbors. Uh, so there's lots of small things that, that um, people can do, um, but that's definitely an area that we want to explore and find out exactly what some of the alternatives are that we can help people um, bring to their area or at least teach them the skills to get those uh, different types of jobs. How many people in Kenya have, is access to the internet a kind of a, a normal thing or no in Kenya? Um, well, cell phone access is pretty ubiquitous across Kenya now. That's one thing that um, um, kind of surprised me the first time I, I, I got here is that everyone has a cell phone, uh, may not be able to read or write, but still has a cell phone, lives without running water, but still has a cell phone. So um, connectivity in that circumstance is, is really widespread. Um, in rural Kenya, um, Internet access isn't as available, but almost every town has a place where you could go and access the Internet if you wanted to. Um, so I'm guessing you asked that because of people's access to deterrent methods. So as conservationists, we've created these methods and, you know, other than going to people or, you know, NGOs that go out and try to spread this information, you know, people may not even have access to the internet, so they can't even 
they can't even get the knowledge of how to protect their farms from elephants. Yeah, it was kind of like two parts to that internet question was from an awareness kind of perspective, which is what you just mentioned there, but also in terms of I'm interested with that idea of internet because if you have internet, um, you know, there's it opens up a, more windows for you to kind of make money and I'm interested in how someone like someone in Kenya could potentially leverage that to kind of earn a couple of bucks. I don't know. This is kind of off topic quite a lot, but I'm just quite interested in that. No, that's okay. Well, you know, and, you know, Kenya is a developing nation. So there's a whole lot of big cities that uh, where people do take advantage of internet businesses and promoting themselves that way. Um, it's really the rural communities that aren't as connected into internet like that because, you know, say they would have no means to, you know, ship products or things like that. Um, so it'd have to be kind of, you know, internet access where they just promoted themselves or learned things and, and not really had, you know, a functioning business. Um, but definitely as internet access continues to expand, you know, it's something to, to look into. Definitely. So what are some of the major roadblocks um, that need to be addressed in order to allow for human elephant coexistence in the long term? Um, sure. So there's a lot of those, <laughs> but um, one of them is land use management. Um, you know, I mentioned that before, but making sure that uh, people that are setting up households or agricultural areas make sure that they don't do it in an area where there's going to be high human elephant conflict. Um, that's not always, you know, easy to achieve. Uh, so, you know, you do have people that are setting up farms in the worst possible places. So trying trying to mitigate that is an issue. Um, you know, poverty is the biggest probably driver of it. Um, you have a very different circumstance if you are, are a somewhat wealthy Kenyan and have a productive farm, an elephant come and takes 10%. Maybe it's not that big of an issue. But when you're a smallholder farmer and, you know, what you grow is what you eat or in what you sell to survive, then it's devastating. So that's where, you know, sustainable livelihoods and alternative livelihoods come into play. Um, Climate change, again, is a huge driver um, with drought periods increasing and very few crop yields happening. Uh, that's exacerbating the situation uh, because it's just driving poverty even deeper. Um, community awareness, again, people um, you know, aren't really familiar with best practices of how to live amongst elephants. You know, They don't have access to the information on how to create or manage tools for, um, for living amongst elephants. Uh, and those are just, you know, some of the roadblocks. Um, there's also a lot of, you know, negative opinions of elephants. People are very afraid of elephants here. Uh, so trying to to shift that and, um, and you know, trying to adjust attitudes that, you know, are age old. Uh, people have farmed for generations in this area and trying to um, find ways to shift them away from those behaviors may be difficult. So how important is the education part specifically to, um, I guess, combat or help manage human-elephant conflict? Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really key issue. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about elephants, about, you know, elephant behavior. Um, 
and you know targeting the the school children is a great place to start as you know with most uh, different initiatives uh, because they're going to go back and talk to mom and dad and tell them about it and you know give them information uh, so definitely we want to be doing some some uh, elephant education programs in the area uh, in conjunction with what wildlife works is already doing um, and uh, you know just really giving people as much information um, as you can is important because then they can um, at least make decisions based off of, you know, facts that you've provided and maybe not, um, you know, a, a misconception that they've had about elephants or, or how elephants act or behave. Um, yeah. So, I mean, education is definitely a, a, a key, key aspect to addressing this problem. So how long have you been actually working in Kenya for on this particular project? So uh, I have been back and forth from the United States over the last three years. Uh, so I think I've been on the ground here for about two years total. Yeah. Um, and probably it's going to be the next three years finishing up my PhD as well. What is one thing that has surprised you the most since working on this project? Oh, gosh, that could be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lots of surprises here. Uh, how many snakes I have in my ceiling? Uh, no, um, probably um, how different the perception uh, of elephants is here of the people that live with them. You know, again, us in the West, we think elephants are these sweet, cuddly creatures. How dare anyone ever harm an elephant? But when you live with elephants and, you know, you're, people can be afraid for their life. So, um you know, their, their outlook, um, on living with elephants is, is, is understandably, uh, a lot more negative than I had expected. Um, but on the positive side of that, um, the welcoming spirit of the people of Kenya is extraordinary. Like people are very open to hearing ideas. They're very welcoming of you in their communities. Um, it's a very safe environment here. Um, and I think, um, that's been the most delightful thing is to see that, you know, the community welcomes ideas, suggestions, assistance, and, and, you know, just you as a person into their communities with open arms. Are there any volunteering opportunities for anyone um, that would like to help out in any way? Absolutely. Um, we do have an Earthwatch program that uh, we have, we welcome six teams per year to Kenya um, and they, pre they perform citizen scientist tax excuse me, citizen scientists tasks uh, with us, help us collect data, uh, observations of the elephants and things like that. Uh, so you can sign up. They have over 50 projects uh, in various parts of the world. And to be able to access that, you go to earthwatch.org and you can look at their various projects and look for ours, which is elephants and sustainable agriculture in Kenya. Um, I think that's one of the, the few elephant projects in Africa. So it should be uh, pretty easy to find and you can come uh, see our entire team uh, for 10 days and uh, you know really be part of searching for solutions awesome so i will include all those links in the show notes um that's kind of interesting for me I, so I, i'm fairly new to this kind of conservation world i'm pretty much only been involved in this space for probably about a year now to be honest um transitioning from architecture to conservation because I'm an architect by trade. Um, but at the moment, all my involvement has been online. So I'd like to kind of take that offline and kind of get some hands-on experience, whether that's in Kenya, whether mm -hmm. it's in Sumatra, whether that's in Borneo. 
it's definitely on my to-do list in the near future for sure. Nothing beats nothing beats being close to wildlife in the real life. Right. And there's several different, you know, types of organizations that do similar things like that. Um, and I think that's that's the um, kind of one of the best things about getting to do this work, too, is you welcome people from all over the world and they get a real deeper understanding of issues like climate change and human elephant coexistence. So, you know, and, and the poverty that this region experiences. So the people that do come and volunteer on these expeditions, you know, leave very changed individuals. And I think it really has a positive impact to con conservation overall um, with the deeper understanding of the issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it usually sparks a willingness to try to do things um, you know, once they get home, be more active um, and, you know, help be, be part of different initiatives. Totally. I mean, I know a lot of people that have kind of done these volunteering um, trips and they've, they've had this experience and it's been life changing for them. And the amazing thing is once they've had this offline physical experience, it changes them, but then they use social media and internet kind of to spread that to everyone else. And then that exactly. touches people and then they want to do that as well. So it's, I like that interplay yeah. between offline and online because you need that offline interaction to kind of get that deeper connection. And then you can use the mm -hmm. online world as a tool to kind of spread that at scale. So yeah, very passionate about that, that kind of that interplay between those two worlds. Um, so for people that want to connect with you and learn more about your work, how can they do that? Sure. Um, well, the earthwatch.org site I mentioned, um, we're also supported by the International Elephant Foundation. You can go to their uh, page there uh, and find uh, our project. Um, but the, probably the best place is on Facebook. We have a, a public project page um, and that's facebook.com, Ellie's Kenya, E-L-E-S Kenya. Or you can just search for elephants and sustainable agriculture in Kenya. Um, and then I also maintain a personal account on Twitter and Instagram where I post a lot of different um, pictures from the project, um, some of my photography um, in, you know, interesting different things there. Okay. So again, I'll, I'll add all those links to the, to the show now. Some people can reach out to you, connect with you and ask some questions if they have anything in mind. Um, so we're reached the end of the podcast, but we have one last question to go. Uh, which also gives us a couple more minutes for any animals to kind of come through in the background. For those that are listening, you can't see, but none, none yet. Lynn's right in the in the bush and some trees in the background, and I was hoping to see some animals, but none as yet. But we've got a couple more minutes. Okay, so the last question: What message or question do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe? Um. Well, it, it's a bit of a somber one. Um, and, in, and it doesn't apply to just elephants, but a lot of the species um, across the world. So I think it's important, um, I believe, and many other scientists do, that this is the age of the Anthropocene. Um, and, you know, we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. So think about in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, how will you explain to your grandchildren how we lost these species? and why we couldn't prevent it.
Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.